Hello and welcome to the 20th episode of Pincount, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. We're not your normal tech news podcast. We'll dig into the APIs, look at the tech specs and spec the details. We're not journalists, we're developers and computer scientists. I'm Ian Wallace and I'm here with my co-host Douglas Shearer. Okay, so this week we've got some follow-up from, I think, the last time we recorded. Quite a while ago. We've not recorded in a while. Yeah, so, summer's been a bit slow. I've seen other people on all sorts of podcasts and media complaining that there isn't much news. Um, and it's been, been really hot here. It's too hot for podcasting. Too, po- too hot for podcasting. Yeah. Are, are things melting? Well, I have to. I podcast upstairs, and upstairs is hotter than downstairs. So <laughs> We don't live in Arizona, though. So, Well, they probably have aircon. Okay, so the first thing was we talked about um, Apple's AR kit last time. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and we were commenting that Apple weren't using it in any of their own apps. It turns out they were, they just didn't speak about it. People discovered as soon as they got um, the iOS 11 beta on their iOS devices um, that in the 3D maps view in Apple Maps there is a augmented reality version of that so you can point it around at, you know the world you're in and I think it places the buildings like what, that you're looking at. So have you put um, the iOS beta on any of your devices? No because the my phone I don't want to put it on that for obvious reasons. Yeah because you're not that, a crazy person. Because I'm not a crazy person yet and then my iPad I've not put it on because the last couple of times I've done it the other people that use the iPad complain about broken things. Okay, I, I've put it on my ear too, uh, which doesn't do ARK, it's not quite new enough. Okay. Um, I'm quite liking it, some of it's a bit different. The performance seems poor, I don't know if it's just because it's the beta and all the debugging's turned on, or is it the fact that the Air 2 is getting quite long in the tooth these days? Mm. You're going to have to be forced to buy an iPad Pro. Well, I'm off to Japan soon, so I can get one with about 10% off, so yeah, maybe... And can you speak to the multitasking on the iOS um, 11? My initial reaction is I fear change and don't like it. It's, it seems more confusing. And like, and I'm normally really good at switching between operating systems. I mean, I use a combination of Windows and Linux all day, every day, and then Macs when I'm at home. So it's, I don't know, it's a bit it's a bit weird. I'm sure there's ways I should be able to switch the combinations of apps that I can't quite work out how, how to do. Yeah, I think the biggest complaint I've seen is about they let you choose sort of pairs of apps, like buddy apps, I suppose you could call them, but you can't have like one app that's a buddy app with multiple other apps, even if it's like the same instance of the app, and that seems to be causing a bit of headaches for people. Yeah, that's um, not bothered me too much, but I think, anyway, we shouldn't talk, there's plenty of other podcasts that yeah, talk tons, about that. Yeah. Um, I'm more interested. Yeah, the AR kit, the, the low level details of that, I'm more interested in looking into the how they're doing the visual inertial odometry. I mean, related to this, have you seen that Apple have started publishing a machine learning blog? Although they call it a machine learning journal, but yeah, come on, guys. Yeah, so a while ago they promised that they'd actually make this a thing because it's a, it's a big thing in the AI. AI is a really research heavy field, and AI researchers tend to be drawn to places that let them publish. So yeah, this I is, mean. This is them. It's no, a recruitment pa- tool. Yeah, it's a recruitment tool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so other follow-up. Um, you've been looking into the Heath, or however you say it, file format, with the yeah, new so, container format for live photos. Yeah, so the, we so speculated last time that um, live photos, 
uh, live photos Apple's implementation of when you take a photograph it takes a little bit of video for I think three seconds before and three seconds after the video saves it with the image and you can look at it on supported devices and uh, operating systems and such like as like a, a video around the photograph and they now let you choose any frame from that six seconds of video mm-hmm. um, and I speculated if it were actually just taking a full frame for every single frame in the video well it turns out they're not it's just going to be, I mean, I think on the higher end devices, it would be like a 4K image, a 4K frame, and they let you choose one of those. So it will be lower quality than the main picture or the main if, image. It's not but, much lower if they're using 4K. 4K is, what, 8.9 megapixels? Yeah, it's, it's pretty close. I mean, most you're not going to notice on a phone screen. You know, yeah. um, you might notice if you're putting it, pardon me, side by side on like a, a big fancy monitor, but not on a phone screen. So, uh, it's good enough. It's not the full frame dream, though. So Most that, people would notice, yeah. Yeah, so that, that'll be next year when Apple supports 6K video on phones. Um, you got something here that's not follow-up, the Skylake and Cable Lake hyper-threading errata. Yeah, so I can't remember if we even mentioned this last time. This was just sort of brewing um, when we recorded last time, and there was a quite a high-profile bug or errata was found in uh, Intel Skylake or and KB Lake um, chips related to hyperthreading, and people got in a bit of a a tizzy about this. It was um, I'll put in the link of the the bug itself and the the really good um, we could, they call it a detective story about how they found the bug and pinned it to a certain thing. Yeah, um, this is, this is fun, right? Because like, how do you even like how do you even get to the situation where you assume this bugger problem is your CPU, right? Yeah, and that, that's what basically this detective story is. It's taking a, a bug that seemed to happen in certain, or a system crash that happened in certain um, situations, finding everybody who's in the software stack to speak to them about it to see if it could possibly be a bug in the software, and then eventually deciding that it's actually a CPU bug in hardware. It's pretty impressive work. I've only ever hit one CPU bug and it wasn't me that found it. It was obscure, obscure bug to relating to memory access on uh, Pentium 4s are actually the same era as Xeons and the ODE physics simulator. But that's yeah. a, a very boring story for another time. Yeah, so, so people got themselves very worked up about this bug, despite the fact that no one seemed to be hitting it day to day. Intel have put out new, what do they call the code? Microcode. Yeah, new microcode um, that that works around it, so everyone should be happy if they hit the bug. Load the new microcode. This, I mean, this is this is pretty normal that they have to fix processes after the fact. That's why the microcode functionality exists. Um, but it's a it's a it's a pretty big bug, right? Basically, the machine breaks and certain you uncertain code it fails. It has to be, yeah. I mean, it has to be a really yeah. They they go they go into it. But it's a really specific ordering of instructions um, that seems. Uh, just from looking at it, it seems unlikely that most applications would have it. This was an old camel. Um, um, the old camel guys were pretty good about helping find the bug. Um, yeah, it's a it's a great read. Um, it's super interesting. So what else we got in here? Uh, EC2 G3 instances. This is um, the new Maxwell GPU based uh, instances. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, M60s. And so on. Yeah, M60s. Yeah. Um, which are mostly targeting, I think, uh, like cloud desktop type applications. Yeah, I mean, I suppose these. I'd argue these are more com- compute because, like, the bigger ones are. They've got um, like four hundred and eighty-eight gig of memory in in the server instance. Yeah, but that's for running lots and lots of virtual desktops on them. Okay, that's what I think they're for. Is is for cloud-hosted desktops? Like, there's a few, um, like it's 
I know of places that are moving to to this as to meet uh, regulatory requirements around security, basically. Okay. And um, so they do say in their bump, it's the first EC2 instance to support NVIDIA grid virtual works, workstation capabilities. Yeah, so this will be why they're doing it, is to meet regulatory requirements, which basically mean no local PCs for anyone, thin clients. Uh, Sun were right back in the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of back in the day, I see an IBM Z, Z series mainframe link in the show notes. So this is, yeah, this is IBM's new um, mainframe. Yeah, uh, you got there eventually. Doug. New mainframe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, new mainframe. Apparently people still use these, but the, the web page itself is like... This is amazing. You mean <laughs> the buzzwords are amazing? Blockchain with transparency and security. Yeah, so they Find mentioned... Administration from anywhere. Yeah, they mentioned blockchain, cloud, and something else. There's like, they don't say deep learning, but they say <laughs> sorry, something sorry. very close to sorry, it. Sorry, I found the best, the best sentence on this page. 100% encryption is 100% mainframe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Instant so... Instant insights and machine learning. Yeah, there you go. There's the machine learning bit. So basically, they've just hit all the... the, the the, bu- the, the buzzwords that are going around. Oh, this is, this, this is a bit of an oxymoron. New secure services of Java. I don't even know where to start with that sentence. <laughs> uh, oh, it looks badass, though. I'm looking at the product images. It looks awesome, yeah. If it's Batman a f- had a computer, he would have a Z-series mainframe. Yeah. Fact. One of the most interesting things about this, I mean, apart from, apart from the buzzwords, I've not looked into the actual hardware very much, but the, the pricing model of it, they say new software pricing tied to business value, which it seems like they charge you a percentage of your business's revenue, which is quite interesting. Does that mean they'll give me one for free if I'm not making any money? I don't think that's how it works, but it certainly means if you're, you know... <laughs> It maybe makes it more affordable for sort of medium-sized businesses that might buy one of these. But I think you still need to be a company in the, you know, tens of millions a year just to get even close to having one of these. I just don't know why you would. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Um, I noticed the other day, I think this is why you put this in that, um, Tesla V100s, is the next generation of Intel's GPUs are starting to appear in the wild. And fed um, Yeah. Um, specifically, they handed out... Uh, some V100s to some of the top machine learning researchers at CVPR, that's Computer Vision and Pattern Recognition, which has just been the past week in Hawaii. They gave them out the weekend. Um, so that's interesting because that's a lot earlier than um, maybe anyone expected to see any of them. Yeah, I mean, they gave it a small number of them, like it was like 13 or 15 or something. Um... They did paint them gold. Okay. I mean, <laughs> Does, I mean, you know. does that make, make does that make them run cooler or I don't know. I wonder if it's because you see likes of like Graphcore just raised another round of thirty million or something and some some big big names in AI and deep learning like investing in them as well, which was interesting. So this is just this is just a little bit extra press for them more than anything. Yeah, I said, well they've got to be scared of the dedicated um ML chips coming out, right? Mm. That, promising orders of magnitude greater performance yeah uh, speaking of the AI chip bandwagon uh, Microsoft have jumped fully on board it, well kind of um, they've announced that they are designing their own chips for neural networks for the next generation of the HoloLens uh, which seems like a bit of a no brainer really You're, you've got a, a device that places virtual objects in the real world and might want to understand what the real world it's looking at is That's it's interesting that they're making their own chips though 
Yeah, I think this is the direction everyone was going in. I also saw um, um, Google were reintroducing Google Glass, but for industry, which seems the obvious application for it, um, for sort of people that work with, I guess, machinery or anything, you can get them bring the manuals up, and it can you know help you help you as you go along. But they were talking about having the custom silicon for that, having um, neural network capable hardware in it. Um, so I can yeah. Yeah, tell what he's looking at and that sort of thing. So it's the same sort of deal. Yeah, so and the, fi- the final uh, in our follow-up is not really follow-up at all. you just written Flash is dead, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, so t- today, today, whatever the date today is, um, Flash, or Flash, Adobe announced end of life for um, the Flash runtime. Uh, in 2020. 2020, yeah. Um, so that gives all the remaining people that run their ads on Flash Four years. Four years? Three years. I, I had to deal with some Flash the other day, and I was like, I, I don't even have anything that, that, that I can open this. It was some um, cunning web interface to a presentation where it indexed all the slides and online chat and the person speaking in the video, and it had all this kind of synchronized together. Oh, there's one of the very popular webinar tools still insists on having Flash installed. Yeah, like so I had to exhume a copy of Chromium that had a Flash plug in it. Yeah, so like, yeah, I, I use Chrome in this situation, but I think even Chrome doesn't turn Flash on by default anymore. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. On my work machine, Chrome doesn't have Flash, but I have a Chromium build that does have Flash. Yeah, so like, in my work, we're very close to not even bothering to ship a Flash version of our video player because so few people use it. And it actually causes like a fair number of bugs and sort of holds, thing, holds things back in terms of like video delivery technology so I think um, like um, Video GS their next major version I think it's 6 which should be out later this year um, they're dropping Flash by default um, I mean yeah as I say it's, no one hits it anymore it's, it's news that isn't news really yeah I mean it's, um, it's been on the downslope for a long time when Apple chose not to support it in iOS it was just like yeah, that was kind of Everyone was going to follow on that just because of the size of the iOS um, user base. Beginning at the end. And yeah. I, I think also when you started getting dedicated decode hardware in silicon for video formats, that, that kind of killed Flash video, which was the main use, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 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 As soon as the browser supported the video element and we could get yeah, H.264 decoding in almost every piece of hardware, that, that was really the last big use of it. And the ads, oh, the ads... Serving platforms, uh, advertising platforms, they all pretty quickly switched over to doing HTML5 as well um, because people were blocking Flash or not installing Flash. So it made sense just to show the ads to everyone. Anyway, this, this brings us neatly onto our topic for tonight, which is, uh, I don't know what you call this, how does the internet work, I guess? Yeah, well, the, the original working title was Doug Goes WebScale, but um, we probably actually won't talk about much WebScale stuff except I might define what WebScale is. All right, let's start there then. What, what's web scale? So web scale was this term that I, th- I would I would say it probably appeared sometime in the two thousands, about the time that um, the likes of Dig was popular. So we're talking like two thousand and five to maybe like two thousand and eight, somewhere when in there. When you could still get yourself a slash dotting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you can. We'll come back to slash dot in a minute because we talked about that the other day, but. Yeah, you could get de- digged, I don't know, what, yeah, digged, or you can get fireballed from dating fireball, you can get slash dotted. And web scale was defined as maybe like a level above that, where you were a web service that lots of people rely on and have huge traffic all the time. So that's like your Facebook, your Google, your Twitter, your whatever. 
And a lot of it came around because Twitter was originally built with Ruby on Rails. I think a lot of the front end of Twitter, if you go to the website, is still Ruby on Rails. And there was the whole can Rails scale thing. And this is where the web scale thing sort of came from, or at least that's where lots of the um, sort of noise around it came from. What is web scale? Then? I'm going to force you to define it. I mean, it's one of these terms that's a bit like big data. I mean, I personally define big data as data so large I can't fit in my trouser pockets, but there you go. <laughs> so so web, web scale is a website that is so big you can't fit it in one data center. That's okay. maybe what I'd go with. Like, Yeah, that, that's pretty good. That's pretty yeah. good. So I think you, you are like a Facebook or a Google. You have multiple dedicated data centers and your problems are around that sort of scale. They're not allowed around seeing how many connections you can get to a single MySQL server. Like, they're different. Yeah, okay. So um, that that brings back to the... Uh, so I guess in terms of the topic, I think... Kind of your specialty is more web backend stuff, so I, I want to I want to learn more about this. It's not something I really know much about. Um, so you mentioned, but I'll, I'll play a bit more ignorant for the sake of our audience. Um, <laughs> you mentioned, and also as a handy excuse for me, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you mentioned Ruby on Rails. What's that for then? Okay, so um, so Ruby's a language. Ruby's a programming language. Ruby's right? a programming language. Ruby on Rails is a web framework that out of the box gives you lots of the tools and also um, organizational idioms for your code okay. to build build web apps with like a database on the back end and you've got some sort of front end on it. We'll discuss the different front ends in a minute. Um, okay, but, so, so you see, wait, hang on, let's step back here. So you, you see, build a web app. What do you mean by that? So a, a, a web app's at the point where you're like, traditionally web pages like early 90s, it was like a static HTML page. It's like a single file. And the yeah. web server just sends that to the browser and there's no computation done apart from that sending it over the wire. A web app's where you start to have code executed to build that page before it's sent over the wire. That page doesn't exist on disk somewhere. It has to be created. You might take a template and if you're logged in, if you're a logged in user, it'll add your name at the top and that sort of thing and send you yeah. okay. that like per user custom file. And then a... A web app's kind of taken that and making it more complex. You might have lots of pages and actions. And one of the common sort of patterns is um, CRUD, um, create, something, update, delete. What's, what's R? Create, read, update, delete, I think it is. Like, it's when he's, I've never really thought about it out loud before. But, so it's the common cycle you might do with something. You might have a, let's say you've, your web app's a blog and you've got a post record and you've got a, you know, a database table with posts in it and you can create those, you can read them, you can update them and you can delete them and you do that all the way from the front end to the back end. So there's a form where you can create your blog post and that goes through some middle stuff like a controller and a model eventually ends up in your database and then you can read that and update it and delete it obviously. Okay so so you you skimmed over the whole kind of front end to back end thing there. I want to build me some internet, what bits do I need to build? It depends what you want to do. What, do. what internet do you want to build? What internet do I want to build? I guess technically, I, just in case there's any pedants screaming at their uh, podcast player <laughs> of choice at the moment, we're talking about the web, not the internet. We do know that. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Vince Cerf will write in and tell us yeah, off. Please write to your local MP if this bothers you. Um, I guess some internet, a typical web page, because a typical web page these days isn't just a web page, as you say. It's um, some all singing, all dancing service where... I'm interacting with other people or services or, you know, I'm buying something or I'm posting a message to someone or I'm streaming some video or I'm, you know, 
grabbing or storing some data or something. Yeah. I mean, what what, what are the bits? How, how do I plumb one up? I've got I've got a database. You said I've got um, some front end. Yeah. So the traditional way things used to be done, and I'll use PHP as the example because that's what I did a lot of work with before I discovered Ruby on Rails. So um, PHP is like a single file that exists on disk. Usually, you make a request to a URL. Your web server decides which file on disk, PHP file on disk, it should pick up and then start to execute. And it executes it from top to bottom. And most people would write everything in the one file. So, like, your database accesses should be in there. Accesses to third-party services, such as uh, payment providers, would be in there. And then it renders the page and then gives you it back. What a web framework does is it breaks those... Or what it should do is break those pieces up into manageable chunks. So, your web server... You call a certain URL with a path which goes to a route. Then there's a, a piece called a router. In Rails, certainly, there's a piece called a router that decides which controller it should ask to generate this page. And then the controller, with perhaps some other layers because of you know um, object-oriented object-oriented programming, um, might call out to other services. It might call out to the database. It might call out to um, other code that then can call third-party services such as payment providers. Um, and then it pulls a template from disk and then using the information it's collected from other services or perhaps the database, it gives that information to the database. So it gives the information to the template, renders the template, and then gives it back to the web server for it to serve to the client. So the, yeah. the framework is it's about organizing your code. It's not... It's not even so much about having all the parts. It's giving you a way to organize it and make it workable by a large team and making lots of the code reusable. And also giving you all the parts that you haven't to go and look for them. Um, lots of my... You say you not have to go and look for them. I'm reminded now of the uh, the framework song, if you're familiar with it. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. So, like... People now, people get quite excited about JavaScript and Node.js for building web apps or web services. Now, the problem I... So why why do they get excited? I mean, I know I know that the theory is you can write the same, write in the same language or the same code for your front end and your back end. But what, what does that even mean? So the uh, so there's like two different things there. First of all, it's writing in the same language. People got excited because people had previously only done front end things with JavaScript. Went oh, I can now use JavaScript in the back end. I don't have to learn another language like Ruby or PHP. There is. Um, there is web frameworks for Node.js. The one that comes to mind, I think, is Express. Um, they give you sort of the tools to build a you know a basic web app, and then you can add other things. But lots of people use it in its raw form, um, where you have to go and get things like, oh, I have to choose a templating language, and I have to use a database access layer, and I ha-, you know you have to choose lots of things. The big thing with Rails was lots of the choices are already made for you, so you could just get on with the job of solving the problem. Now they're using the same the same code on the front end and the back end. I think is is that orthogonal web framework. I think they call that. I don't think that happens very often. I think that's. I'd like to be shown examples of where that's worked and where it's worked really well. Because um, I so haven't I haven't seen it done that often. Even the same language argument seems like a bit of an odd one to me because, although yeah okay the syntax and some of the tooling might be the same, the the sorts of things you need to do. And like the front end, i.e., the code that's executing in the web page on the user's browser, and the back end code that's running on a server somewhere, mm. it's, it's such different things. That yeah, must be working in such different ways that, like the actual language you're speaking, you're talking about different things. You know, it doesn't. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, that's that's an argument I would use against it. Like JavaScript is great on the front end just because it's supported everywhere. And yes, the implementations are slightly different in different browsers. But um, on the back end, there are better tools. I mean, one of the big flaws in Node.js is, yes, it's evented and it's really fast if you're just doing network. What do you mean by evented then? So, uh, event, evented programming, uh, it's a, yeah, evented programming is the right thing. Um, so basically, like the example of Node.js, it runs in a single, it's a single, it's a single thread. It runs in a single process. I'll say that. That's definitely correct. I can't say whether it's a single thread. Um, but it can handle like thousands or tens of thousands of connections all in the one thread. Because um, it's, it's dropping work. The way I imagine it in my head, and this might be completely wrong, is it's dropping work into a queue. It's saying, I want to move some bits from here to here, and that goes into a queue, and then there's one thing that processes that. You know, and you, all your work's going into a queue. The, the problem with that is all your work... callbacks, right? Everything's asynchronous callbacks. It, yeah, so the, the callbacks are there because you're waiting on the last piece of work to be done. Like, when that last piece of work is done and you've got to make the decision about the next thing look at this callback do the thing in there and then that goes that callback's back at the top of the queue if there's lots of things in the queue now the big problem with that is if any of your pieces of work is actually like a real piece of work and i mean even um encrypting a string or something that is computationally intensive and i'm talking about like you know like milli or nanoseconds here everything else in the queue is waiting for that so there's a potential to end up with like um every Every connection that is on the server is waiting for one particular connection that happens to be doing some serious work. And to me, that seems like a bit of a flaw. It makes it simple, though, simple to program. I mean, the thing I found, I tried a very little bit of Node.js, and I found it, um, like, it's conceptually simple to understand what's going on when you're writing the software. Yeah. But I don't think it's any easier than other things. I think the callbacks... I, I got the impression... If you started building anything of any sufficient complexity, then you started to get into all kinds of subtle nightmares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Subtle nightmares is the great thing. I mean, if you, you end up with like nested callbacks, you end up with what looks like a giant pyramid on your screen, but turned sideways when you look at your code. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, so it's just like callback and callback and callback. And I don't think the the callbacks are more complex. Sorry, they're more complex and easier to screw up than say um, just. Most other programming languages where things are executed in order and it's obvious what's happening. Ah, but the thing is they're not, right? To achieve performance in most other paradigms, you end up turning to parallel programming, which is notoriously hard. Yeah, so like, so I, I'll, I'll describe the flaws in Ruby as a, a web serving language. It is um, also... Let me get this right again. It doesn't use system threads. So you can have you can write a Ruby application or a Ruby script that has threads in it and there's a thread primitive in Ruby. But those don't map to threads on the actual hardware. So you might have two cores and you might have two threads in your Ruby application, but that isn't running on two threads on the hardware. Um, there's a thing called a global interpreter interpreter lock, um, which prevents that happening. That might go away in future Ruby implementations. In JRuby, which is um, Ruby run on top of Java, that um, restriction isn't there. You can use all, all the hardware threads. Uh, this is why I'm a big fan of, for certain applications, a big fan of um, Phoenix and Elixir, which run on the Erlang virtual machine, because there, once you get your head around the sort of functional programming, you get the concurrency for free. Okay, so I feel we've we've strayed a bit from how the, how the internet works. <laughs> um, so you keep mentioning databases. 
why why do we bother like what i mean i mean the obvious answer is the obvious answer is because you need to store data somewhere right? yeah you need to remember stuff yeah uh what stuff why does everything need a database it seems it's yeah, I don't know if everything needs a database. I mean, like, our, the website we use for this podcast um, is just static web pages. There's nothing to be saved anywhere. Like, perhaps a way to implement that would have been to make it, like, a full-on web app with, um, you know, dynamic, dynamically generated program uh, pages where we have the, um, each episode might be a row on a database table and then we want to generate the list of episodes we pull that row in the database table and then render it but that doesn't change very often so it's not worth having it in the database you may as well just render all the pages in advance and save them that's that's called that it's become cool again but it's called a static website um, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about dynamically generated podcasts where it just reads the show notes and then uses some sort of ai to generate the podcast yeah i mean we're working on that you know every yeah. day around the clock but yeah. there's some there's lots of web apps and websites out there that use databases when I would argue they don't need to at all. Like The information they have isn't customised enough to an individual user and doesn't change quick enough to warrant having it be a database on the back end. Okay, so we keep talking about back end and front end, so this is implying there's different different bits of the internet are happening in different places. Where, where is it all happening? How, how many... Like, like, can we go... Let's go through like the moving bits in the internet. So, like... If I'm, uh, what's a good internet example? Okay, so what's the internet to most people? It's Facebook, right? Right. And to a lot of people it is. It's the number one web browser, right? It's clicking links in Facebook. Yeah. So let's say I'm on my phone, I'm browsing Facebook, and I click a link. Like, what? what, what what's all involved in that? Let's, let's go through it. I mean, okay, so I've got my phone. There's, there's the front end. That's the code executing on my phone. Okay. That's, that's being served from somewhere with some input from a database. Okay, so you're... So we'll go from the top then. You type in the URL in your web browser. No, no, uh, tap a link in Facebook because you stored you that's why everyone has seen it for most people, right? Okay. So you tap a link in Facebook, <laughs> the, the browser takes that URL, the browser then asks your operating system to do a DNS lookup, or it might have cached it already, to find out where that URL is hosted from, what IP address, um, and then finds what IP address that's hosted at. That's what it asks that it makes the rest of the request to. It's probably going to be HTTPS, so it's going to have to do the handshake to set up an SSL connection to make sure things are nice and secure and hopefully no one can snoop on your communication. Um, then once that's done, you start the and it'll probably be HTTP 1.1. Um, it will start the HTTP process of like this is the path I want to look at. You know, uh, here- we're going a, we're going a bit low level here. So okay, so <laughs> okay, but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Here's the cookies I have, and it gives it to the web server. And at that point, I am going to guess that Facebook serve you what is almost a static web page. Because they're caching it for performance. Yeah, and it's a static web page with almost nothing on it. It's almost not personalized to you. And your browser loads that, but it loads JavaScript, and the JavaScript does the actual page rendering. When you look at Facebook's web page, not much of it is actually served directly from the server. If you turn JavaScript off, Unless they, I mean, I guess they have got a non-JavaScript version, but if you turn JavaScript off in the main case, not much will be rendered on the page. What you see is taking sort of secondary and tertiary requests to the back end for data um, in the form of JSON, probably, that it then renders to be the things you see on the page. Okay, so I've got I've got my, my phones involved here. We've got the DNS server that's involved. And then I guess a lot of people might think that, oh, 
you're just speaking to the Facebook server, but it's not the Facebook server, right? No. That's got to be. We're talking uh, enormous, well, m- many data centers, right? I mean, that's so that's an interesting thing as well, right? How how does it know which data center? <laughs> you were you were complaining about being a bit low level a minute ago, but okay, well, I'll give you this one. So, like, um, <laughs> you you can explain this one. Come on, it's okay. So, the, explain to the listeners what's happening there. So, when you get um. So this gets into like oh this gets into IP routing and such. So when you get the IP address from the DNS server, Facebook are serving that IP address from many places in the world. And the way that is done, the way you decide or tell people that you know I'm a web server and I'm serving what, like whatever the IP address is, um, you announce that on a protocol called BGP, and that's announced to other routers on the internet. You say, I've got this IP address. If you get any requests from that, send it to me. And that, okay. spread, that spreads it over the internet. Now, if you do that from multiple places, when you make a request, it's almost certain that that request will go to the nearest data center or server to you. Now, it might not be the geographically closest because it depends on, you know, like... Um, distance you know time over wire like the ping time but it's roughly like that but then the thing the thing that's crazy to me is they will be serving so say i'm viewing a photo on facebook they will be serving that same photo from different places of the world and they've somehow got to synchronize all the scale right yeah exactly so a a cdn content delivery network that's this is for things like photographs it doesn't really work so well with data but static things like photographs and video and like um you can you can have um a CDN I use a lot uh, Fastly and they have a piece of software called use a piece of software an open source piece of software called Varnish that runs in all their nodes and you can do smart things about that like deciding which pages to cache and which not to and you can actually cache your whole website with it and it makes requests on the back end to your web servers now with a, the simplest case a photograph you make a request for that photograph you're using Fastly as a, the web the web service or the web app is using Fastly as their CDN. They use they definitely use the BGP thing I was talking about earlier. So your request goes to the nearest data center. They look in their cache. Do we have this photograph? If it's yes, they just give it to you straight away. If it's no, they know where to go in your back end to get the photograph. They cache it for the next time in case you want it again. So the idea here is I have my server running the back end of my web app and it's it's the like authoritative source of yes. the photo or whatever. Yeah. But rather than you know, my server's in the UK, someone in Japan's going to access the photo, rather than having to round trip it around the world. The point is, as long as someone's accessed it before through the CDN, it's, it's cached at some local servers then. Yeah, so I mean, even even if it's not cached, there's still an advantage to having the CDN, especially when you're doing SSL connections, because setting up an SNL connection, SSL connection takes, I think it's five... It's five back and forwards to set it up. Now, if you, if you had to do that every single time to a server, the other... Other way, no, sorry, halfway around the world. That's quite an expensive request to make. You know, it takes a lot of time to set that up. If you only set that up to your local CDN node, and then it sets up its own persistent because you're making lots of requests from different clients, connection to your backend halfway around the world. That's a far less expensive request for the client, and their experience is much better, even if the image isn't cached. Okay, and yes. It's interesting how much all these little things add up because all this stuff has got to happen before you even see, you know, see the web page on your screen. Yeah, web performance is like a really funny thing. Like people get really worked up about that, especially with things like Rails, like how long it takes to render the page on the back end or how long it takes to render a request and get out. That isn't the main part of web performance by far. You get that down to 100 milliseconds and you're good. It's all the other stuff like, you know, the, 
time you know time to first bite even on the client isn't quite as important as having a page that is rendered that the user can see and start using you know because if you're at there's a famous statistic about it. i can't remember the actual numbers but if for every like i think it's for every second of delay like you know 10 percent of your customers will disappear if you're an e-commerce website so you want to get that page up as fast as possible so people aren't bored and possibly off doing something else yeah. Okay. So that's that's been a very whistle stop tour of how the internet works. I'm definitely going to think up more questions when I listen through this in the edit. So, so thanks for listening to Pin Count. Show notes are online at pincountpodcast.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Douglas F. Shearer. You can also find Ian on Twitter at the underscore accidental. You can follow the show at Pin Count Podcast. We love to get feedback. Tweet us or use the hashtag Ask Pin Count, or leave us a review and I iTunes or Apple Podcasts? Apple Podcasts. Podcasts. Yeah. For longer feedback, or if you just can't explain how wrong we got something without reference to the API documentation and CAD drawings, email wrong on the internet at pincountpodcast.com. I expect to get um, feedback on how many uh, back and forths there are on an SSL connection now. I I will only accept feedback in the form of CAD drawings on SSL connections. (laughs) (laughs) So you're talking about some amazing aftershow you had. Yeah, got? so there's there's the, there's the link there. It's the YouTube video. I want you to watch the YouTube video. Okay, let me let me click this. <laughs> yeah, you get to describe what it is after Carly Claus tells us about the website building website she's using. What the what the hell? <laughs> okay, so it's very fast moving robots. One of them's got kind of big wings. They're trying to knock each each other out. Are these controlled by people or AI? So this is, yeah, this is the interesting thing. This is um, a Japanese sumo robot. And I've put another link in there. It describes the rules. There's different categories of them. And mm. lots of these ones you're watching here are actually human controlled. There, okay. it, there is classes for AI controlled robots and assisted robots and different classes of AI controlled robots as well. Where some of them you're allowed a workstation just outside the ring that does the computation. Other ones, all the computation has got to be done on the robots. And these are about shoebox-sized robots that fight each other in a circular ring and try and push the other one out. And it's quite... It's really fast and violent. But if you notice in the background, lots of the people in the background are wearing, like, full, like, hockey shin pads. And this is is because the robots quite often violently leave the ring. Oh, yeah, I've just seen one fly out there. Yeah. This is awesome. I'm going to Japan soon. I want to see this. Yeah, so the, the thing that was fascinating for me here was watching this and going, is this humans or not? And it turns out lots of them are humans and the rules are, you know, quite interesting. I wonder if you do, like, preset moves. Like, it's almost like... You know, you get a big... It's like a, a soundboard. You get a big pad of buttons and you choose the, you know, do the three yeah. spins and hit them fast move kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, some of these are awful. They're just getting, like, shunted straight out. Well, some of them have got, like, big wings on them. Like, that's, that's surely cheating. Yeah, so, so the the rules state things like it's got to you've got to start at a certain size. You're not allowed to be at a certain size, but you can have the fold out whatever you want. But as long as it doesn't, you know, as long as it's not detachable, as long as your robot doesn't turn into like twenty tiny robots, they seem quite happy with almost everything. There's, I mean, basically a wedge seems like the oh, this is awesome. This makes me want to do this. Yeah, it's like a wedge with like a razor blade in the front of it. And this is like, I, I used to find, you know, we had uh, Robot Wars on the TV yeah, in the yeah. UK when we were kids, and I used to find that a bit dull, you know, just because it was mostly talking and stuff. And this is just a, a compilation of, like, the robot sumo wrestling. But these seem a lot more interesting, just because I think that... It looks like it's like a whole bunch of things going on all at once in some sort of school hall. Yeah, I think it's like a school hall, yeah. Yeah, it's cool, though. That's pretty cool. 
Oh, there's, there's something one that looks like some sort of underground robot fighting ring. <laughs>